Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it's Tuesday, February 9th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe. Uh, we are back from a brief hiatus. We wanted to start graduate school off on the right foot and also do some planning on things to talk about, people to have on. Uh, had some cool ideas, so, so hopefully you guys uh, all enjoy. Uh, hopefully everyone stayed safe and had a fun Super Bowl weekend. The game wasn't that great on the field, but uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defeated the Chiefs. I was wrong in my prediction. I thought the Chiefs would win, but Tom Brady has now won his seventh Super Bowl. Uh, his first with, a, with the second team has now won seven Super Bowls with two different teams. One of the greatest achievements in... Uh, in any team sport history. Uh, and it pains me to say this as a proud and true New Yorker and New York Giants fan, but the argument for greatest football player of all time is is pretty much over now. Uh, it's Brady and you're just debating about uh, number two. So uh, coming up today on the podcast is a really fun conversation I had last week with coach Kate Pearson uh, who's the head women's basketball coach at Cabrini University uh, which is a school right side of Philadelphia really really fun conversation so uh, hoping you guys enjoy it so I'll hit the music and we'll come back with that conversation with coach Pearson Joining me today on the podcast is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach of Cabrini University, Kate Pearson. She played both basketball and lacrosse at Division Three powerhouse Scranton University, winning two MAC basketball titles and two MAC lacrosse titles. Coach Pearson is the second all-time leader in three-pointers made at Scranton and attempted and was elected into the Scranton's Wall of Fame in 2014. She began her coaching career at Cabrini in 2004 as an assistant women's basketball coach, where she remained for five years. In 2009, she was promoted and named the head women's basketball coach at Cabrini, and in her 12 years at the helm, she has led the Cavaliers to a 201-98 record, making five NCAA tournaments, four 24-plus win seasons, and the 2020 ECAC Championship. I'm thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Thanks, David, so much for having me. Um, things are, are going as, as best we can, uh, given our current circumstances. For sure, for sure. So kind of we're going to start in the present, and then we're going to work our way uh, backwards chronologically. So obviously, you know, it doesn't need to be said the last year or so has just been absolutely crazy for everyone, and that includes colleges and universities as uh, they all are different. They all have different needs, different campuses, different situations, different geographical location. So for this upcoming spring semester, what is Cabrini's plan uh, with regards to COVID? Is everyone back on campus? Certain amounts like, like what is Cabrini doing? So we are still kind of in the midst of unrolling um, all of those plans. So we have been started our second semester of classes on January 25th. So this is the second week of classes. Um, but there was a decision um, a couple weeks ago to do our first three weeks virtual in order to kind of mitigate some things. Um, and so on February 15th is when we will have our students back on campus and back doing classes and then trying to get uh, our athletics up and going and other student activities on campus. Gotcha. Gotcha. So obviously in a 
quote unquote traditional year, men's and women's basketball teams would be on campus now. They've been on campus all winter break, practicing, playing conference games. Obviously, as, as you said, not everyone is back on campus right now, but what are sort of the approach of the women's basketball program to this spring semester? You know, it's one of those things that as a, we've, I've been in basketball my entire life as long as I can remember, um, and any of my college experience has been spent January on campus, um, double sessions uh, with your team 24 seven. Um, so this January was uh, very different um, and, and really hard for, I think, uh, all of our coaches and players to not have that. Um, you know, sometimes there's, we always joke at the end of that, like winter break, once we roll into the second semester that our players are, are welcoming the rest of uh, the campus back and excited right. to have other faces around. Um, and so this part of it is just that polar opposite where, um, you know, we're, we're grasping at the straws to try and um, find ways to, to be together and connect. And, um, you know, I think the biggest struggle is that they've had so many virtual classes that, you know, another Zoom call with the team, even though with the team, it's still just so hard to connect that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, the approach is to kind of make it through this last week from that scenario and then, um, We'll have to kind of work through some of the testing protocols for COVID and look to start getting back on the court um, in a couple weeks. So for the, the priority for our um, for Cabrini and our conference is for the spring sports first um, once mm-hmm. we get back and then allow the um, winter sports to kind of start to um, get back into some practices and, and hope to schedule a contest or two in there. Gotcha, gotcha. So that's kind of been the frustrating thing when following this stuff and trying to really understand what's going on is there is no uniformity. Every conference is doing something different because the schools in each conference have their own needs, their own situations. So just what has it been like for you this winter as, you know, usually we're playing two to three games a week during winter. What has that been like for you as a coach to not have a game to, to prep for during this time of the year where, it's almost like your instinct and your habit is to be like, hey, who who do we have next? It um it, it really has been a hard adjustment. And I think um, what it has done is really just kind of, um, you know, as we just had a conversation with some of my players yesterday about this uh, in terms of our identities and mm-hmm. uh, as our student athletes, they that's how they identify themselves as a student athlete, as a basketball player. And so not having that piece of it that is so big for them like so much of their lives of of time of energy of passion and then just to kind of have it on hold um has been really hard for all of us and so i've just tried to kind of shift and also um realize that my job as a coach though it it does revolve around a lot of x's and o's and game prep and scouting and practice planning it's also um, a big part of it is being a mentor for them and providing guidance and providing support so i've just tried to find ways to connect with them over this um and in all honesty there hasn't been a whole lot of basketball talk because we can't be on the court the same way um it's been more on the mental health piece more on um, tips for helping them motivate themselves to find a way to to work out to motivate themselves to look for um, good healthy eating habits Mm -hmm. um you know ways to 
to find things like podcasts they can listen to like Mm -hmm. this um, instead of just, you know, I think it's hard for them to get sucked into the social media piece. And I think that is the hardest part of all this is seeing on social media, you know, the whole thing with social media is like you're always comparing. So, you know, the athletes are comparing, wait, why is this school getting to do this? And this school's getting to do this and we're not. So like you said, I think the unknown and the, the fact that everybody's doing something different has been the hardest part of, of navigating this. One hundred percent, I I agree with with a lot of that. And you know, it's interesting. You guys are in Pennsylvania, the Division One schools and the Patriot League that are in Pennsylvania, Lehigh, Lafayette. They're playing games right now during basketball, but it's so hard to be like, well, why can't we do that? Right, and even um, you know some of the other ones. So we're like right near the Philadelphia area. So mm-hmm. same thing, like the Philadelphia schools are playing. And then um, I think what's what's really hard too is a lot of the high schools have now picked up. Yeah. Now the difference is with high schools, they're not really um, following or mandating the testing the way the NCAA is. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the ins and outs of of all the decisions around this are so much bigger than I think people realize you know and especially our athletes they just see other people playing and they don't really you know understand all the ins and outs and everybody at the university is just trying to make the decisions that are best to keep everybody safe in the long run and that's just a hard um hard thing to handle 100 percent. so so working back now let's let's go back to almost the the beginning where did you grow up and kind of how did you first start playing the game of basketball so I grew up in um, in the area in like the Philadelphia suburbs, um, Springfield, Delaware County. So um, Delco is uh, is a big name in terms of that. And um, so I kind of grew up as a um, multi sport athlete. I played you know everything under the sun um, when I was a young kid. I came from a family um, that really followed athletics, especially Philly sports. And uh, my mom is a coach, um, so. It was uh, the basketball piece of it um, was always kind of there and like, you know, as I was younger, but it was probably more around that seventh, eighth grade where um, I really started to fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of my fondest memories growing up in terms of the basketball was I actually used to go to Drexel University basketball camp and it was a co-ed camp. So it was playing down in, uh, you know, the inner city with people from Philadelphia, from the out. Um, you know, the suburbs and New Jersey area, and it was a good mix and, and usually playing with mostly boys and like, um, finding ways to go and be kind of, you know, whatever pickup games you can find. Right. And most of the time, you know, there was more, more boys going out and playing pickup than girls. So, yeah. um, that was probably one of my fondest memories as I think back about, you know, falling in love with the sport. Now your mom was a coach and that's something that's, I haven't been able to have on this podcast is, you know, having a bunch of great coaches on and a lot of really good guests it's been not super common but i've had a bunch of coaches whose dads were coaches who played for their dads what was it like growing up with your mom as as the coach in the family um you know there's and and she'll tell you and i'll tell you that it was very uh ups, ups and downs with uh-huh. that because um yeah, like you said, she, you know, people and and things change at times, but think of like mom as the nurturer and things like that. And my mm-hmm. mom was, but she was tough and she was um, always came at things with a coaching mentality. Um, but I think because of that, it, it kind of has led me to this path. And mm-hmm. honestly, too, um, 
I grew up on Cabrini's campus because my mom helped start the women's soccer program there. Wow. So she was the soccer coach when I was in high school up and through um, my first year of college. She, she coached and then she stepped away so that she could kind of follow some of my stuff was up there. So, um, you know, I look back, we had lots of fights, but I also know that if it weren't for her influence and it weren't mm-hmm. for her um, coaching expertise that way, that I probably would not have had the success or would not have followed this path. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. And she uh, has, you know, she is a great coach and has taught me a lot along those lines. Now, she coached soccer. Did she ever also coach you in basketball or lacrosse or or, or kind of just how did she feel about you becoming an awesome basketball and, and uh, lacrosse player? Um, you know, she kind of coached a little bit of everything and at the youth level, mm-hmm. um, mostly soccer initially, because, again, that was kind of, um, you know, where she found her niche. And yeah. um, she was at a couple different area high schools and then up into Cabrini. Um, but also, you know, more of kind of summer leagues and things like that with basketball. And then, ironically, she had never played lacrosse, but she has since. Um, she is a soccer, basketball, and lacrosse coach at the local middle school. That's great. Um, and year in and year out, she turns out undefeated season and <laughs> um, star athletes. So she just uh, really knows how to motivate players. And you know, lacrosse and basketball and soccer all have a lot of things um, mm. that can kind of cross over. Um, but that's kind of a credit to how, how good she is um, from that standpoint. So you're growing up in in the Philly area, you know. I don't know too much about Pennsylvania, but what I do know is that Philadelphia is on one side of the state, and Scranton is not not that close, right? Or is it? It's about it's about two hours, so okay. it's not too far. Um, you know, and that was actually a really good uh, distance mm-hmm. for me because it was a little different change of scenery, but but not too far because I was still connected to my family at home. Now, while while going through the recruiting process, was there any pressure to to pick Cabrini because you you know your mom coached there, you grew up there, or was it kind of like, hey, I need to do my own thing and just get a little bit further away? Yeah, I think that was kind of the understanding because. Um, you know, I, I really loved Cabrini, and and but being on campus, it to me it was almost too familiar. So mm-hmm. I did want to um, have a little change of scenery, um, and kind of step out a little bit. So we it wasn't really a huge discussion or any pressure um, that way. It was kind of, you know, the recruiting process was. Um, I was all over the place trying to decide where I wanted to be, and I uh, went to Scranton a couple times, and eventually decided that that was absolutely where, you know, when I would look back on it, I think I knew the first time I went, but it took me, mm-hmm. um, I think my third trip up there to a, a playoff game to really yeah. have that light bulb moment. Now, were you recruited as a multi-sport athlete, or was that something that you picked up once you were on campus? So um, the lacrosse program at Scranton was actually very young when I okay. started it, uh, when I started. So for me, I loved uh, my, my heart was was into basketball um, and it was there was no chance that I was going to be able to not play basketball in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually came from my high school was a very strong um lacrosse program so I probably had some opportunities to pursue um some higher level lacrosse but I knew that my heart was in basketball so my recruiting process went through that and then it was just kind of like a bonus that I was going to also play lacrosse um at a school that that had the program that's yeah because 
it's it's weird when when you know you go through it and so many it feels like uh division three female student athletes play multiple sports and that that's it's something a lot rarer uh on the men's side so so how did the being not just a college athlete but a multi-sport college athlete how did kind of that shape your college experience because any college athlete will tell you time management is like their number one thing that they struggle with how did you balance all that with a screen in school playing two sports and then also you know trying to have a social life and all at the same time um i think that and this is actually something that as now from the coaching standpoint when i speak with um student athletes about this process and i have had a number of dual sport athletes at cabrini and actually it's something that um, a couple of the coaches and i work to still look for because we see a lot of qualities in those type of athletes mm-hmm. um that, that sometimes i work better the more in my schedule the better mm-hmm. um so that part of it though at times was a little tricky with the crossover um i think to you know you have to have the right coaches and the coaches at scranton both understood that basketball was like my top priority and then uh, when i got to lacrosse i would give everything i had but it wasn't uh there wasn't a huge ex- expectation and i think too when i played there was some fall workouts but the fall ball stuff was not the same that it is now a lot of yeah. things have, have continued to kind of increase in that and and i think that's one of the reasons why you don't always see the dual sport athletes mm-hmm. even at the high school level you know yeah. that round the year um sports goes um so for me it it just, I liked the, the adjustment, the, the change of scenery, you know, basketball is a long season and, Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard. And so when it got to the spring, sometimes it was good to have that, that distraction and that ability to to shift to a new focus and a new sport and a new group of, of athletes and teammates. And to be able to be a part of a championship season and with two different groups and experience that, um, at that level was pretty, um, pretty rewarding from that sense and um and you know some very different type of of mentalities from the two different um sports however both um you know taught me a lot so you mentioned that when you arrive at scranton the lacrosse program was was pretty young but the basketball program you know awesome it's basically just the one way to describe one of the best programs not just in the northeast but the whole country was there an adjustment period to playing on not just a really, really good team, but a team with such high expectations where the NCAA tournament making runs are something that that's kind of expected? Yes. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that as I was going through the recruiting process that I was so attracted to Sprint was because of that, you know, the history in their program and the success. And they had just come off multiple Final Fours Mm -hmm. and Kelly Halpin, who's one of the best players uh, to go through there, was actually from um, the area that I grew up in. So, you know, there was a ability to speak with um, with her. Coach Strong would would recruit in our area because the Philadelphia Catholic League has a lot of really good players. So it wasn't, um, we joked, I think the team, a lot of times when I was playing, it was like Philly or like New Jersey, or New York, <laughs> like, but there was a good contingent from that Philly area, that yeah. Philly Catholic league area. Um, so there was a, you know, it was, I, I recall my freshman year was very up and down. Um, when I first got there and in that preseason scenario, you know, I felt like I fit right in. And then, um, as the season went on, we had some rocky periods because 
Kelly was a part of a big senior class who had graduated. We had five mm-hmm. um, freshmen who were expected to come in and kind of help right away, but there was a little bit of a, you know, you can't really rebuild in that type of program, but there was a little bit of, um, you know, high expectations for us. And yeah. I think that made it um, a little bit of a, um, an up and down year, my freshman year. Interesting. Now your game, you know, I, it was, it was hard to get some films. So I have to rely on, you know, the, the record book, but you were shooting threes before it was like really, really cool and really popular to shoot threes. Kind of where did the, the green light come from? And, and, I, and I guess just why were you so drawn to the three point line? Cause it was not the emphasis when it was, when you were playing college as it is today, where it feels like some teams are like, where, where some teams now in college are shooting more threes than twos per game. Right. Yeah, we definitely had a little bit of, you know, that that inside out looking for um, Mm -hmm. some motion stuff that way. Um, I think for me, I was a I wasn't a really tall player. So um, I looked a lot to kind of create more from the perimeter to use more of kind of step back um, jumpers instead of attacking to the basket the same way. So, um, you know, my players nowadays if uh most of them know as long as they say if you're open you're allowed to shoot it and yeah. because if they ever looked up my stats they, they <laughs> would know that i didn't mess them up so um you know i think when uh when you're on the other side of it and coaching if i went back i'd probably yell at myself a couple times for taking uh too many of those open shots but um you know, I don't know. It was just something that I did work on and stayed and shot and, and looked for ways. I think too that mentality of the threes is worth more than two. So. Yeah, and, and and also now at schools, you know, scran you know, the kids are smart. They can just say, "Hey, look, the analytics say this is this is a better shot, coach. It's it it's better." I'll tell you what, though, I I do. It's funny because I see the analytics there, but I also still I am a big fan of the pull up jumper. Um, Mm -hmm. I do like that. And I did use that one a lot. I'm not um, huge uh, on that. I know there are some people that say layup or three. Um, I haven't quite crossed over into that again because I had to use some of that that pull up because I was a little bit smaller. Yeah, it's it's, that's that's like an NBA thing because those. Mm-hmm. They're so good and, and WNBA they're they're so good. It's 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 different in college, but yeah, I I agree with you that sometimes you take the pull up jump shot like Kawhi Leonard won an NBA championship basically taking pull up twos. Uh yeah. so but while you're at Scranton, you know, Scranton good school, kids are I'm sure talking about what they want to do after school. They pro you know, I just graduated from from college. You go through about three or four different freak out periods during your four years of like, oh my god, what am I doing? Do I need to change my major? Oh my god, now I'm going on this path. Did you have any of those crazy freak out moments, or was it, or were you always kind of just planning to go into coaching? Um, no, I actually initially went in thinking I was going to go into like journalism. I remember writing my essay, um, at the time wanting to be like Linda Cohen in sports center. Um, but then when I like looked back and in the summers I would work camps and the things that I loved most about working camps were doing the teaching. And I came from a family of educators. So I think part of me, like with my mom being in education and my stepdad was in education, I think part of me was being that resistant like I don't want to be teaching because that's what they do where when I bring it back to it um you know when I graduated the biggest thing I had the hardest time was more of 
of letting go of of that part of it of yeah. of the athlete part of playing um so i really wasn't sure exactly what path i was going to be um and so ironically this is where that you know there's adages that say you know, your career chooses you so right. i got a phone call from bobby morgan who's the current um women's basketball coach at haverford college and she was the high school coach at Haverford High School, which was our rival high school mm. in uh, growing up. And she was taking the job at Cabrini and looking for an assistant. And she wanted somebody who was like right out of college, played at a good Division three program. And so she called. And I remember my mom telling me that she was calling. And I was like, no way. Bobby yeah. is like Haverford High School. She's <laughs> not going there. Um, so I started with her um, right away. So then because of that, I then found like a teaching job and then ended up going back and getting my master's in cert from Cabrini for education and then around the same time that that was happening bobby left cabrini to go to haverford and then it just kind of things fell into place so um i actually was was about to go the path of the high school teacher high school coach Mm -hmm. when um the cabrini job opened up for the second time in a row Uh and so then it was kind of like oh i guess i'm supposed to go for this right that was in 2009 and uh, so then I've been the head coach since. Wow. So you mentioned that that idea of letting go of your playing career and transitioning to coaching. And people always talk about and, and really say that in a lot of sports, but especially in basketball, really good players make bad coaches on average because they sometimes don't get why other people can't do what they did. So how did you transition from being a really, really good player in college to now you're now two seats over on the bench and you're in a completely different uh, job where you can't necessarily go out and make six threes in a row and, and win the game, but you have to kind of empower the players on the team to go out and do that. How, how did you go about that process of letting go and transitioning to the coaching side of the game? Well, I will tell you that my first couple of years on the sidelines were very hard. Yeah. <laughs> it was very hard to make that transition, you know, mentally. And um, one of the, the benefits of going into it, though, is I've always been more of, and again, coming from um, my mom as a coach, um, we are, growing up, I watched so much basketball. I was always a student mm-hmm. of the game, wanting to know why, you know, players are doing this, watching this, watching um different strategies and then um, having the opportunity to play for coach strong, who was um, very good in the basketball mindset and then coaching under Bobby. I learned so much from her. And actually one of the things too, I think when I was with Bobby that first year, we were very low on numbers. So Mm -hmm. I actually like got the opportunity to jump into practice a good amount. And when you are in practice, I remember my first year, as the coach, I was like, I wish I'd go back and play another year because when you're looking at it from that other angle of the coaching side of it, um, then you just kind of, you know, you you recognize the importance of the box out, of yeah. the setting the screen, of the little things and the attention to detail. Um, and when I was uh, at Scranton, I actually would work in Coach Strong's office and do film breakdown for him. Um you know, at the time before synergy happens, you know, before mm-hmm. they did it for you. So all of those things helped prepare me for it. Um, and, but I think it was probably, I remember, I think it was like our, 
my third year coaching with Bobby and we were going to the playoffs and I came to, to the game the next day. And I was like, Bobby, I think I finally like shifted from player to coach. I yeah. had a dream last night about <laughs> the game and what was going to happen and what we should be doing. So, um, you know, I think that was, that was kind of the turning point, but it definitely takes some time. You were ahead of the game on mindfulness and visualization too. <laughs> yeah, I was trying, I was trying. <laughs> now, you know, as assistant coaches at all level, there's there's the grind to it. And the the grind word is, I think, a little overused, but it represents a true feeling, which is you do a lot of things behind the scenes, a lot of not so glamorous things, but it all kind of adds up to the success of a program building, whether it's the 12-hour car ride from Pennsylvania to like Boo Williams in Virginia and staying at a not so nice hotel to maybe recruit the one player who can take you over the top kind of how did you deal with because you're an assistant coach for for five seasons just the grind of it of, of doing all the the not so glamorous work uh for five years because not a lot of coaches at, at the division three level at least stay at the same program for for that long when they're assistants yeah i think um you know a lot of it is that leadership piece and you kind of follow the example and uh, Bobby is one of the hardest working coaches that I know. Um, mm -hmm. And so anything that she um, was kind of asking us to do, she was also doing. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, um, there was never really this expectation, like you're the assistant, you have to do this. It was yeah. a shared kind of responsibility. And if anything, you know, she did way more, even of, of those things, of those, those, uh, drive in to see the same recruit for you know their seventh playoff game yeah. through the state tournament in a row um so i think it's just and again um you know both my mom and my dad just instilled that work ethic in me as a mm. kid so um it is through that kind of and, and grit is one of our um, core values at Cabrini and, and kind of I put it in there as you have to be able to to dig in and, and go through and able to work hard um, through that. So and if you love it, you know, uh -huh. you can and no and, and I'll be 100 percent honest, you know, I don't love the recruiting trail like I don't love those long trips and doing all that for the chase. But I do love the, the back end of it. You know, I do love the payoff of it when yeah. you get the relationship piece of getting to know those recruits and when you get them there and get to coach them for four years and then continue that afterwards, uh -huh. um, you know, it, it can be challenging and daunting at times. And, um, but in the long run, you know, the, the, the gains are, are better than, uh, than the risks. Yeah. My, my mom who did a lot of the recruiting stuff with me, uh, it's almost like once you reach a certain age or look at it from a different angle, uh, she liked the part of spending time with me and, you know, my teammates and, you know, all the, the non-basketball stuff, but she just couldn't get past the smell of these gyms, like the Brandeis gym in the summer of just all these sweaty teenage boys. And she would always ask like, how, like, how do you play in this? Like, can't you smell it? I'm like, mom, like we're, we're, I'm trying to get recruited. Oh my God. It's so funny. Cause I actually like miss those gyms. Now I feel like yeah. you go to the gyms, the air condition is pumped up and I'm like freezing yeah. the entire exactly. time. You don't have those like, you know, sweat boxes anymore. These kids uh, get to play in, in air condition all the time. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's all now the, the COVID protocols, right? Yeah. 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 So as you said, 2009 in the summertime, you get the opportunity, you're named the head coach at Cabrini and, you know, you were building up the program. You're an assistant coach. The last, the, the two years before you became the head coach, very successful seasons, 20 plus wins, 
but now you're the head coach and now you're the one in charge. How did you go about, you know, balancing the uh, keeping things the way that they were, right? Because it was working with the with the tweaks and the changes to the program that you wanted to make because you were now the head coach. Yeah, my first year was definitely very challenging, and um, you know, part of it was that thought that oh, I was the assistant coach. I was gonna. It would be good for me just to shift over. It'll be welcome from the players and whatnot. Yeah. But at the same time, what had happened for us was Bobby was there. Did fantastic job of rebuilding the program she uh, when she left we had Bernadette Lakaitis come in who is now the current um, head coach at Holy Family University which is in the Philadelphia area mm-hmm. um, and she was only there for a year and when she came in we had returned pretty much our entire championship team um, you know we had a really good schedule great kids and she brought such positive energy and she's just an awesome coach and like when I say positive energy it's like through the roof like it's hard to to like it wouldn't matter how positive I was I don't think I could ever physically meet um what she brings to the table (laughs) so then um we had a great year for her year and then she unexpectedly um left that year to go to the University of Pennsylvania to go with her mentor Mm -hmm. because he took the job there so our returning players were crushed um, because they really fell in love with burn as they should. And then also we graduated eight players from that team. And I think five of them were significant players like Mm -hmm. starters and first um, couple off the bench. And that was a part of Bobby, uh, Bobby's first recruiting class and our first recruiting class. So the loss of really great coach and the loss of a really great class um, with, and the timing that it happened really, um, gave me a lot of challenges for a first year coach. So even though I had the comfortable ness of being in a, in a program that I knew and I was a part of, right. It almost sometimes made it harder because then it was like, Oh, well we're supposed to continue to keep going on this, mm-hmm. but we took such a setback that way. So, and it is a big adjustment when you're the assistant coach, you have all the answers and you're yeah. telling it says you're telling the head coach, why can't you, why wouldn't you do this? What do you mean you're doing that? What? Yeah. And then when you have to make those harder decisions, um, you know, then it, it changes things. So, um, my first year was definitely uh, a challenge from that standpoint. Um, and so it took a couple of years to get back to the success that we wanted to be um, to be at. And I learned a lot that first year um, from, you know, our team, from our coaches, from, you know, my standpoint of, of things that I wish I could go back and, and change. Um, and so, you know, it's but at the same time, um, it was still like an experience that was necessary for my growing. Yeah. People always talk about that. Those six inches from the first assistant chair to the head coach chair on the bench is like the longest. Sometimes six inches is just a completely different reality. Sometimes that you become when you're the assistant coach versus you move over just one chair. And well, I guess now the chairs are six yeah. feet apart, not six inches, but yeah, uh, it is a huge difference. So, a word that everyone uses now in sports, and not not just sports, but everywhere, Warriors, Patriots, you know, the local coffee shop is culture. Everyone t- is talking culture, culture, culture. But it's almost like people just throw the word culture out, not realizing that culture th- has no definition, that you form the definition of it based on where you are. And culture can mean so many different things. And some teams, 
you know, now don't even use the word culture, but they use like core principles. So do you use the term culture at Cabrini or the culture of the women's basketball program? And, and if you do kind of what, what makes it up? Like, what is your definition of the culture of the women's program? That's a really good question. And I agree with you that I think, um, you know, it's that again, when we go back to kind of the social media and you have to brand your program and what words are you putting out there? What message are you sending? And, um, you know, I think sometimes the word culture might be thrown around, um, you know, about, you know, how do you want, and, and I look at it more as like, what is that feeling that we have when we're together, when we're in the locker room, when we're in practice? Um, so we do talk about our core values, and for us, they are grit, gratitude, and commitment. And I think I try to really hit in on the gratitude one um, as much as possible because, you know, it is especially given now when we have not been able to have a, a real season and be together and practice every day. And it's not that I have to go to practice as I get to go to practice. It's mm-hmm. that, you know, if I'm the, the starting um, leading scorer, go-to player, I better make sure I am thanking that, um, you know, person who does not get in every game but still comes to practice every day and works just as hard as I do um, to make sure that we're successful. And so, we just really, my goal is to try and provide uh, the best overall experience possible for our student athletes. And so, um, you know, we talk about wanting to make sure that winning is going to be a part of that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, winning is going to increase and enhance your experience. So we have to think about, you know, committing to each other, committing to excellence, um, committing to pushing one another every day of practice and listening to each other and, um, you know, putting that team first before the individual. And we've had a lot of success over the years because we've had a lot of players like that. We, we I, I think I can only count on, you know, I think I've only had two player of the years in the conference um, mm-hmm. since I've been there. But part of it is because we've had so much balance. Yeah. And we've had kids really buy into that role and their role appreciation. And so we're, we're really big on like kind of open communication with that to make sure everybody understands uh, where they are. And they might not always be 100% happy with that, mm-hmm. but it's um, at least going to be kind of identified and discussed. So I think that the biggest thing, you know, we, we try to push a family scenario and try to make sure that they understand that um, being there for one another, whether it's pushing you in practice or being there, you know, when you're going through a tough time, that's, mm-hmm. that's what's really important. And I'm curious about this because, you know, at the college level, there's not there's not as much roster turnover year to year as there is at the professional level. But there is naturally kids graduate, kids leave, new freshmen come in. The roster changes so much now over time. You know, there's certain non-negotiable parts of a program that for any successful program, like being on time, if if there's ever I haven't met a single coach and middle school high school college pros whoever's like you know what being on time don't don't worry about it uh but then how do you balance like keeping okay some things have to stay the same with you have a new you have a new team every year you have a new group of girls every four years coming into the program how do you balance keeping certain things the same that have to stay the same with evolving this the so-called culture the feeling around the team to match who the team actually is in that specific year. So we put a lot of responsibility kind of on our 
team leaders for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's sort of part of their responsibility to, you know, kind of pass some of those things on. And what we also try to do in order for that to happen is connect our, our alums with our um, current players. And, you know, I'll sometimes have our alums write letters to our new players so that they kind of welcome them into, you know, that, that Cabrini family and they get to know each other that way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, like you said, yeah, the, the, the late thing, that's something that definitely is big with us. Yeah. Um, that by the time where our role is, you know, you have to be ready to go 15 minutes before um, practice starts, like ready to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time my, my seniors are there, they're usually there before I get there for yeah. even like 6 a.m. practices <laughs> because they're like they don't ever want to be the one that's not late. They know they have to be the um, example setters. Mm-hmm. So I, I put a lot on my um my team leaders to continue to kind of move that down. But you're right. Sometimes the personality of the team changes Yeah. and, um, you know, adjusting to that piece of it. And that's something that, again, when I think back on, you know, the, my first year as a coach, I was very, very serious and like, mm-hmm. you have to make sure you do this and that. And, and um, you know, they, they got to have fun too. So mm-hmm. it's, it's that, that balance of that, commitment but then also you know you got to be able to smile when you're at practice um and and take on and i think it was around my you know fourth year and probably fourth or fifth year some of my um you know first teams winning conference championships and going on that i remember being really loose on the sidelines because Mm -hmm. that's how they were yeah and so as a coach sometimes you also have to take a step and a lead from your team um and so i think there's a there's that balance and so um having those expectations set for what I expect, but then also allowing our team leaders to say, you know, what do you think this team needs? And, Mm. you know, it might be as easy as, you know, this practice, do we think we need to do, you know, something silly, this practice or whatever. So that communication is helpful. Yeah. You know, kids are and college students are different than they were in 1985 versus 2000 to even now in 2020. It's like, they're just different. They just need different things. It's, it's and so coaches, the best coaches evolve with how the kids are like, uh, and that's why you see some coaches who have sustained successes because they just get kids at the age that they have them. Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, I definitely have to keep working at it. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and, and getting that that um, you know pulse from them and and making sure that you kind of you do like you said adapt because mm-hmm. if you don't then it's they're not gonna they're not gonna relate they're not gonna buy in and they're not gonna want to play for you now while you're building the vision of the Cabrini ones basketball team in the, the way that you saw it those first three four five years how much is your mom influencing you or you're talking to her saying hey I'm trying this out what do you think of this motivation tactic what do you think of this how is the the communication where she was a head coach at Cabrini. You're a head coach at Cabrini. What what was that like? Um, you know, she always has um, input to give, mm-hmm. and so at that point, um, we've definitely had different discussions where she has given me very valuable input, and mm-hmm. then we've had other times where um, it might have been valuable input, but I also have, um, you know, the mom daughter thing have, yeah. have refused <laughs> to kind of listen to it. Um, I think the hardest part is that um, you know. 
she's she is one of our biggest supporters and she mm-hmm. is at a lot of our games um but what i have to remind her and remind other people is you're only at our games right now yeah you know, you're not at, at the practice every single day so you know I, I understand where you see this but you know we haven't done x y and z or whatever it might be but it, mm. it always um allows for good discussions and good thinking points for me either way as to decide which of her input you know is is definitely going to help and there's been a lot of times where it has and she's been really helpful especially early on with um you know, the recruiting process of who to look for in terms of a Cabrini student athlete, ways to connect with them. You know, she used to, she was part-time. The admission, she couldn't always, you know, rely on the admissions office. So she would just Mm -hmm. kind of give tours herself. So I started doing that early on. It gave me an opportunity to get to talk with the players more and get to know them more during that. So, um, you know, it's definitely up and down with her. Um, and then bouncing ideas off other coaches in the area and things like that. Are, coaches are always looking for for ways to communicate with each other and, and kind of steal some ideas. Now, another really sort of rare thing that you've had to deal with during your head coaching career is the rules of your sport changed like halfway through your, your tenure. You know, you went from playing two halves to now it's four quarters fouls reset ball advancement you know all all this stuff now they're moving the three-point line back how did you adjust to all of the rule changes you know 10 plus years into your overall coaching career but also a couple decades into your just basketball institutional knowledge career yeah you know it's so funny because i can barely remember games um that were halves at this yeah. point and like <laughs> Basketball before the advance rule is like seems so far away and so terrible to it's, me because it's every primitive. time I watch a men's game, I'm like, I can't believe a men's college game that they don't have the advance rule yet because yeah. it is, um, you know, it is a game changer to, yes. to say the least. Um, so I remember the first year that that happened, um, we kind of made a list of the most important rules, um, put them on like a cheat sheet, went over uh-huh. them with our players. And then that just really changed to the way I started practicing. Um, we started, you know, we made sure that game situation stuff were part of our daily practice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, finish a drill and just turn it into, you know, whether the, the score on the clock says it's one minute to go, 30 seconds or not, we might just push it to that. We might look at the mm-hmm. clock and say, let's play this out. You have one timeout. You have one timeout. Um, we change it up where sometimes I'm coaching them. Sometimes yeah. it's my assistant. Sometimes it's the team. And so we a- attached a bunch of different, like, you know, code words to those things to help make sure they understood that. Um, so I think that that adjustment made me a better coach because it made me stop and really think about, okay, how do I have to make sure that they know what's going on? Cause yeah. I, I have a lot of players who don't watch it and don't pay attention. <laughs> so that's actually a conversation I have a lot of times on the um, recruiting talks of, do you guys know about the advanced rule? So yeah. that they kind of start to know this is something we talk about. Yeah. In my four years at, at Wesleyan, we, we've probably spent a little too much time because, you know, it was a part of like the fun thing was we would have, mm-hmm. you know, the no advancements ridiculous. It's like one of my pet peeves about college basketball on the men's side. But we would have plays where, okay, we have to throw the ball the length of the court. And then we'd also have plays where, all right, we're going to throw it to this spot so we can call a timeout and just, like, get to half court so we could basically drop a normal, 
the ball as advanced, try to win the gameplay. It would become fun, but it was also it was it was a lot of time. The the balls yeah. were, were flying around uh, the gym. Uh, my my one assistant gives me a hard time because I don't have I don't really practice the no timeouts very often because yeah. um, I try to strategize so that I have them. He's like, there there's going to be a game where you don't. I'm like, I know, I know. Yeah. So we we don't really have that long ball one, and we don't work on those ones very much at all. Well, if you know, if you're ever out of timeouts and you need one, you can always do the the NBA trick of spill something on the court. They have to wipe it up. It's it's a free timeout. You know, the, or you could just you know, if you have replay, all that stuff. There's 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 ways to get around it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so tw- 2012 season, huge year. You guys win 24 games, run the table in the conference, starts the streak of three straight 24 win seasons, three NCAA tournament bursts. You get your first NCAA tournament victory in 2014. As a coach, you know, as a player playing the tournament, it's awesome, it's fun. But so, but coaches are judged fairly or unfairly on not just how many wins they get, but how many tournament wins too. Just what did that mean for you to get that that first one out of the way? Um, I think for us, because that was the first one in program history. So, um, you know, one of the challenges that Cabrini has faced is that we are in a, um, you know, a conference that at the time the strength of schedule wasn't high enough. Like yeah. we, it was hard to know how good we really were because, um, you know, we, we had done so well in our conference, but our conference wasn't getting enough respect in the in the area in the NCAA. So that year was the first year I think too where. Um, we had a better pool or, you know, opportunity, but, um, so it was, it was big just because I think, you know, as a player, one of the reasons that, um, when I was going through the recruiting process that I went to Scranton was because I knew they were competing in the NCAA. They were, had Mm -hmm. a chance to go to the final four almost every year. So, you know, to be able to talk to your recruits about it from that standpoint is important, but also just to give the, um, the athletes that, experience um right you know it is something that it's it's hard to put into words until you're out there and um that group was really a really talented group but a really you know when we talk about when you think about the culture or the you know the way you want a team to act and treat each other that was one of those groups who really deserved to to get to that point um Mm. i think that was my first recruiting class they were seniors so that part made it even more um, rewarding that way to see their growth and development and see them be able to put so much time and effort into the program and to to take it to that level. And one of the the quirks of the Division Three tournament is you play back to backs in the first round and the second round, unlike in Division One when you get that day off. So the next night you you win the first game. The next night you're playing Montclair State and a textbook March Madness game, right? Close early, you guys build up a double-digit lead, they claw back, and it's back and forth, back and forth. You know, unfortunately, you guys came up just short in, in overtime, but I'm always curious about this because as a player, you're you're in it, and you try to keep your emotions kind of level through all the ups and the, the swings, and especially in an elimination game. When you're coaching a game like this and you're seeing all this happen, but you can't jump onto the court and like do things yourself kind of, how do you keep your emotions in check? You know, I think uh, that game will forever be there, you know, in that cost mm. of that's the one you want back scenario. Yeah. And um, I think the hardest part was that was a Montclair made 
big plays um, late in the game. And there were certain things that, like you're saying, without the real turnaround prep and, you know, we at that point were still kind of in that mindset. Yeah, that week we did prep for both teams, like in an expectation of winning. But you still are only back-to-back. This isn't a team that our players knew. They didn't know the scenarios. I, I knew certain things were, you know, I remember watching them develop, like, shoot, I know this is going to happen on the court. Like, I wanted 27 yeah. timeouts in that game. Because <laughs> <laughs> I could see them, but I couldn't quite communicate them. So that's where, you know, we, we did with that team specifically pride ourselves a lot in that game prep scenario, the scouting report, stuff like that. So in a tournament, scenario that was different for them um and i think the hardest part of that game was that we had it and we kind of started to play that um not to lose instead of to win Mm -hmm. um so i think that being on the sideline i just remember like wanting yes like you're saying to be able to do more wanting to stop and like explain and and calm them down a little bit and uh that year um too i think it was uh i know that Montclair had some very good players on that team and, and they also stepped up and made some big plays. But mm-hmm. <laughs> actually the coach at Montclair, and I still joke about this, the, the one girl hit like a corner three. I think it was like the only three she had hit all year. So like that <laughs> kind of stuff also happened in yeah. that game that I was like, that's who we were giving the shot to. And yeah. then it went in and that was like the game like that was like kind of the one that really like turned it. So it's a textbook March madness game. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So, so jumping ahead to last season, 2019, 2020 season, another 20 win campaign, you guys win the ECAC crown, but around the time that the postseason was starting, you know, something else was going on too. We didn't know it at the time. And it kind of feels like yesterday, but it also kind of feels like five years ago. But do you remember the first time you heard the word coronavirus? Yes. Um, and I think it was right going into, uh, I feel like we were able to host the ECAC tournament. Um, mm. And I think it was like right going into that week that I remember them talking about, like, we. I don't think we were going to shake hands afterwards because okay. of the coronavirus. And I remember like scoffing at it. Like, what? <laughs> it's just like, and, and, and I still think it's funny that, that we're not shaking hands only because you're playing a game where you're all touching the ball. You're all, yeah, um, you know, boxing out, you're doing all this stuff, but then we can't shake hands afterwards. Um, so that was the, the first, um, that I remember hearing about it. And again, you know, especially at that point, it's, it's postseason, it's March, um, in my own world. I don't really know what's going on outside of like your basketball. Um, so I think that was, you know, I must've heard something going into that week or it must've been mentioned on one of our calls mm-hmm. prepping for the tournament that week. Um, and then ironically we won the ECACs on Sunday. I think we came back, and it was the following weekend where everybody was sent home. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, um, it was, so we like snuck it in and I am very grateful for that. Um, cause it was really hard for us to, we were kind of that last team in, in the, in the tournament last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but for our seniors to be able to, to finish out at home and play, they played really well that weekend. Um, and and be able to end with a win mm-hmm. and a championship without it being cut um, was you know there was some reward in that aspect. Now what was it like? Because because you're you're right in your recollection. You guys win the tournament the eighth, the eleventh. Rudy Gobert tests positive, basically shutting down the NBA. The next day, 
the NCAA cancels the March Madness tournament, the conference tournaments, you know, the, the famous, I think it was St. John's game where they played the first half and everyone was just like, why are we doing this? And then they ended it at halftime uh, on Thursday afternoon. What was it like for you as a coach? You win the tournament, you, you get the trophy, it's in your office. I'm sure you're pumped getting ready for next season, a good spring workouts. Now all of a sudden everyone's home. Everyone's back to where uh, their their homes are, wherever it is around the country. What was that like as the adjustment as a coach where you're used to seeing your team every single day? You're you're probably thinking to yourself, you know, I need some alone time away from all these people I see every single day for multiple, multiple hours to they're on a screen and you don't know the next time you'll be able to see them in person is. Yeah, and I think that um, in March it wasn't, um, you know, none of us really thought we were going to still be here. Like we, yeah. everybody at the time joked about March being the longest month ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I remember just kind of at that point, like you said, it didn't really affect me the way it clearly has now. Um, because that's usually a little bit of a time that we take to kind of like decompress. Um, like I said, basketball, you're starting right as soon as you guys get to campus in August, going all the way through that March scenario. Um, it's a good time just to kind of relax. So initially I, I almost welcomed it a little bit. I have um, young kids at home. So it was like, all right, this is a good time to be able to like, you know, kind of relax. And cause normally what's happening too, at that point I'm going out and watching high school state playoff games and then going right into like the recruiting stuff. So yeah. I'm not going to lie. I didn't hate it at first. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, when you had to keep connecting through zoom and then with everything, um, you know, having to address big issues like black lives matter through zoom and not mm. being able to have those personal conversations with your players about what's going on. Um, that, that part of it was hard because that's a time where you just feel like you need to be there for them and, and you can't connect with them the same way as, as over a computer. Yeah. That was, that was the hardest part of March and April in terms of you're trying to reach out to people. You're talking on zoom to, to people, people are checking in. It's like, well, what are you doing? And, after about a week, it was pretty much the same. Well, I went to the couch, then I went to the fridge, and I went back to the couch. You know, like there's there wasn't yeah. much to do when we were all locked down. And uh, I think the what you said about the Zoom fatigue that's happening to everyone, and especially college age kids who it's college is like the ultimate social life experience where you're always around people, and now it's all on Zoom. It's completely different. And even when we have been on campus, um, those the restrictions as they should be in there. Yeah. Like we understand why the colleges are doing this, but they're restricting the kids from bouncing around dorms. And that's the part mm -hmm. I keep saying to my athletes is that I'm really sorry that you guys are going through this because this should not be your college experience. Your co like you just said, it's supposed to be that. You know, that was one of my favorite parts of it. Let's just like bounce around the door and let's go see who's what's doing here and just hang yeah. out. Um, and they just are are missing that piece of it too. Exactly. So, so I have two final questions before we get to some fun, fast ones at the end. You mentioned, and you know, just for the listeners who don't know, uh, Philadelphia high school basketball is awesome. The Catholic league, the public school league, Philly high school basketball is one of the best leagues in probably the whole country in like a true high school, not like the prep schools of New England. Cause I, I view that as something different because of, uh, you know, boarding schools, PG years, but the, the true like high school freshman to senior year, the Philly area, really, really, really good. 
Cabrini, 30-ish minute drive, you know, depending on weather, traffic, all that stuff. What type of advantages do you find of having that type of recruiting hotbed so close and also just being so close to Philly for professional internship opportunities, the fun social parts of having a major city kind of right in your backyard? You know, for the recruiting piece of it, what we um, also look at it in that sense is for those kids who don't necessarily want that Philly, Philadelphia city feel, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, kind of feel like you're a little bit secluded, but we are, like you just said, 20 minutes from there. It is an easy one. And I think when I first started recruiting, I tried to kind of go outside of the Philadelphia area first just to bring people into it to mm. intrigue. Some of our kids were from like New York, from Delaware, from um, we get a lot of Jersey kids. And mm. then once we started to build the success, then we could go to the Philadelphia Catholic League and see, oh, OK, this is where, um, you know, you can have an opportunity and stay home and, and look for those op- opportunities to grow. And, right. and honestly, one of the, the best parts about it um, from the standpoint of not just playing because the playing piece of it is there is 30 some schools within 30 miles i think of us like yeah the the be able to play really good teams without having to drive two three four hours or get on a flight like that opportunity but then professionally um to be able to connect and see a lot of this um there's a there's a certain connection and uh, among Philadelphia coaches. Yeah. So I can just go down to a Penn practice, to a Drexel practice, to a Villanova practice and just pop in and learn. And so many of the coaches in this network and coaches across the board do it. Um, and, you know, whether it's because I grew up in this area that I feel a certain connection to it, that, um, you know, that part of it is really awesome. And, and every fall, actually, Bobby Morgan and I usually do that. We, we mm-hmm. pop around, we get all the, the schedules since we're usually starting later. Um, so there's definite elements of, of all of that, and there's still um, people outside of Philadelphia may or may not know the like the palestra and how that is just like the the kind of air around the palestra and be yeah. able to play there, and that's where the Philadelphia Catholic League plays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Penn, the history there is is really remarkable. Now, I I love asking this question to coaches because uh, it's it's always really interesting. How do you watch the game of basketball now when you're when you're at home and you're watching a college game or uh, a pro game? Can you kind of just sit and watch the way that a fan would, kind of the way that like I would? Or is that coaching part of your brain always on where you're rewinding to see an out-of-bounds set Brad Stevens drew up? Or, wait, what did Don Staley run here? Like, can you sit and just watch? Or is that part of your brain always on? Yeah, I very rarely can sit and watch, and then I'll <laughs> add one more layer to it. My husband's an official, so oh, wow. <laughs> so he's actually rewinds probably more than I do, which then I don't complain necessarily because then. But it's funny because we watch the same game so differently. Yeah, like he'll be like, "Did you see that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, did you see the way they defended the ball screen?" I'm like, "No, the like position. He was out of position when he made that call." <laughs> so, <laughs> like that part of it. Um, is is very interesting um you know just getting the kind of that feedback and be able to sit and watch a game so no very rarely is it we're just going to watch and i and now and that also you know to bring this back to some of your early questions with mm. my mom i can see why um you know as a as a my mom was hardly ever able to just watch my game as a game mm-hmm. because you know that coaching mind is hard to turn off follow up question now has your marriage to your husband, who's 
a referee. Are you now easier on refs while you're coaching due to due, due to that aspect than you were uh, several years ago? Or when the refs screw up, do you still let, let them have it? <laughs> no, I think uh, it has been very much to my advantage to um, also learn, like, when I have right to argue and when uh-huh. I don't. So, you know, if I'm watching film and we can relook through something, then I'd be like, no, that was clearly a charge. And I'm yeah. like, you know, um, and also just allows to, um, you know, he's taught me one of the biggest, most important part is just the communication and the way you mm-hmm. communicate with the officials. And I think it's, I see how if he has a bad game or a bad call, how he takes it home. So it's just yeah. bringing that human level back to it. Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for um, for officials because I see how much work goes into it when you're when you're doing it right. Interesting, for sure. So I have five rapid fire questions to wrap up the podcast. Okay, shoot. Number one, your biggest pet peeve as a coach. Um, when my kids come out of a game and just walk right past people and forget to high five all their teammates that just stood up for them and have been cheering for them the whole time. That's a good one. I haven't heard that one yet. That's a good one. Yeah. Number two, toughest loss to get over during your playing career. Uh, I'm pretty sure we already spoke about it. Um, I think, you know, we were right on the doorstep of the Sweet 16 when we lost to Montclair in overtime. Um, So that one usually comes to mind. Your favorite drill to run as a coach? Uh, I think my favorite drill is probably my player's favorite drill, which we call 21, which is just like a closeout rebounding drill. But it's like first team to get to 21, and they get after it and get real competitive. Okay. Do you have any coaching mentors or uh, idols where, you know, you you talked about a couple of coaches that that you go around with, but but where it's – if they're doing a coaching clinic on Zoom, you're you're logging in, you're watching their games, uh, kind of like in like in that idle way. Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think I think Kelly Gray's is my most recent one. Okay. Um, I really really like the stuff that he puts out there. He has great energy. Anytime he speaks, you know, he just has this ability to kind of bring you in, and uh, and he's had a lot of success and. Um, I think he's probably on my idol one right now. And so last question, I apologize if you have been asked this question, you know, a thousand times before you're from the Philly area, you coach around Philly, Pats or Genos? <laughs> Do you want to know a terrible answer? I've it can't actually, be the third um, one. No, well, I don't even think I've ever eaten Pats or Genos because yeah, I have, I, I think we've gone down and uh, Larry's. Larry's, I have to Larry's. give a third one. Larry's is a place right by St. Joe's. Larry's, so, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not into the cheesesteak. I'm more of a chicken cheesesteak um, okay. uh, kind of girl. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Coach Pearson, really, really appreciate uh, all the time. As always on the Double Double, give the last word to our guests. Do you have anything you want to say or shout out to the great people of Radnor, Pennsylvania? Uh, David, I just want to thank you. This has, uh, you know, been great to be able to kind of just have a, a conversation. And, you know, I think the last thing I'd say is for those who are getting the opportunity to play right now, make sure you savor it. And for um, those coaches and players right now who are, are waiting for it, um, it's just to make sure it makes us better. For sure. Best of luck in the spring semester once, you know, it opens up and you guys can uh, do athletic activity. 
Yeah, okay. Chomping <laughs> at the bit. I cannot wait to get back out there. So thank you so much, David. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Take care and make it a great day.